Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms. We're going to be turning to Psalm 4 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 569. If you're a guest with us, we are spending the summer uh, working through the beginning of the book of Psalms. We've come to Psalm 4 this morning, and I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject, a song for the evening. And everything that I'm going to say to you this morning is coming straight off of the pages of Scripture. And so I'm going to encourage you to leave your Bible open because I promise you this about Psalm 4. This is a song, this is a psalm that you're going to need to turn to one day in your life when life is dark. And you will find help in the words of this psalm. Psalm 4. We'll begin reading in verse 1. And this is what the Word of God says. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This psalm is often called an evening psalm. It was a prayer of David expressing trust offered to God at the close of a long and trouble-filled day. Many interpreters believe that Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 once formed a single unit. And if this connection is accurate, then the background of Psalm 4 is the same as Psalm 3, the revolt of Absalom against his father, David. Psalm 3, as we learned last week, was a prayer expressed in the early morning, while Psalm 4, as we'll learn this week, was a prayer offered to God in the evening. It is a prayer, it is a song, if you will, that is helpful to all of us in this room. One commentator said of Psalm 4, It is a psalm which reflects the anguish of the innocent and oppressed, or of the righteous sufferer. And thus it is a particularly important kind of psalm, for it addresses a fundamental human experience, the experience of injustice, the experience of suffering, and the experience of oppression. Listen carefully to how he ended his comments. There are days in the lives of all human beings which require a psalm like this at their end. There are days in the lives of every human being that requires a psalm like this 
to end the day. Now you'll notice in the Bible that the superscription of this psalm reads to the choir master, a title directing the worship leader in the public worship service of the people of God. And since this psalm was given to the choir master, generations of Israelites sang this song in the temple to strengthen their faith. And as this psalm was sung, the superscription says that it was to be accompanied with stringed instruments, that the harp and the lyre were to be added to the singing of the congregation to form an orchestra. In this psalm, David is expressing the battle that rages within our heart at night as we lay our head down on the pillow. On one side is stacked up all of the clamoring accusations of the day and the misunderstandings and the painful words of the day of actual people in our lives or of demonic attack or of our own sinful fallen minds. And on the other side is the Lord. And both beckon to us. Both invite us to listen. And in the darkness of that moment, David makes up his mind that he will trust the Lord. And in the darkness, as he trusts the Lord, David experiences great joy and peaceful sleep in the midst of a trouble-filled day. And like Job, David learned that God gives songs to his people in the night. And in this psalm, David models confident trust in God in the midst of a considerable trial. So I want you to note with me this morning four truths that David models for us in the midst of his trial. In verse number one, I want you to see David's confidence in prayer. The Bible says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And once again, we see David pleading with God before he pleads with anyone else at the beginning of this psalm. And in the midst of his painful circumstances, David called out to God in prayer with confidence. And if you'll look carefully at verse number one, you'll see three imperatives, three action phrases that David fires off in rapid succession to God. He says, answer me, be gracious to me, and hear my prayer. And David was bold and confident in prayer because he knew the character of the one to whom he was praying. David says that he is praying and he is talking to the God of his righteousness. And you'll notice that before David ever expressed a need, before David ever made a request to God, before David ever poured out his experiences to God, David exalted the character of God. David did not appeal to God on the basis of his own goodness or of his own personal achievements. David appealed to God solely on God's perfect, righteous character. Now, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon helps us understand 
what David means when he refers to God as a God of his righteousness. And he says, it means, Lord, you are the author, you're the witness, you're the maintainer, you're the judge, and you're the rewarder of my righteousness. To you I appeal from the defamations and harsh judgments of men. To say that God is my righteousness is to say that God does what is right in every single one of his relationships with his people. It is to say that God is committed to his people. It is to say that God is committed to the well-being of his people. And because David knew that God was a God of righteousness, David was absolutely confident and convinced that when he prayed to God and he poured his heart out to God, the God of his righteousness would hear his prayer and would answer him and would be gracious to him. And so, in the midst of difficulty, David cries for God's help. And in his passionate plea, look at the text, he remembers, right there in the middle of verse 1, he remembers how God has given him relief in the past when he was in distress. And we got to talk about this for a second. You have to understand what David is referring to here. The word distress is an important word in verse number one. It's an important word that you'll find throughout the book of Psalms. And it is used to describe trying circumstances in the book of Psalms. It can literally be translated tight place. And it pictures the psalmist's plight as being pushed and pressed and backed into a corner. He is feeling painfully restricted as if he has no way out. And this is the pain and the distress and the circumstances in which David has found himself before and in which he finds himself now. He's all too familiar with being in a tight place, surrounded on all sides, pressed into a corner, feeling as if there is no way out, if there is no light in the darkness. But notice the text. Every time... David found himself in a tight place. His testimony was that God, the God of his righteousness, whom he's praying to, gave him relief. The word relief is the opposite of distress. It means an open place. It means that you make space for someone or something. And what David's testimony to the God of his righteousness is, God, in times past, in every season, in every situation of my life in the past, when I found myself in a tight place and the walls were closing in all around me and there was no way of escape in the darkness, you came as the God of my righteousness and you gave me relief. You took that tight space and you opened it up into a wide place for me to rest. You're the God of my righteousness. You're the God who gives me relief. And don't miss what he's saying, church. He's saying, God, because you were faithful to me in the past, I know that I can come to you in this very moment with everything that is going on in my life and I can trust you with all of this to give me relief again. And as a result, his confidence in God 
causes him to plead for God to be gracious to him and to hear his prayer. When David prays for God to be gracious to him, he's confessing to God that he lacks the resources that he needs to get through this trial, that he finds himself in a desperate and helpless condition. Can't you relate to that? Don't you remember what that feels like? Maybe you feel like that this very moment this morning. But notice, David's not in despair. He has confidence that God will hear him because of the character of God and because of how God has worked in his life in the past. And so David says, God, be gracious to me. Demonstrate your tender compassion on my life. Give me what I need by your grace to get through this trial. David's confident in prayer. David's urgent in prayer. He is worshiping God at the outset of this psalm, both intelligently and in desperation. And he serves as a model for all of us in the midst of despair and distress and darkness of how we pray and talk to God with confidence. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary points out that biblical prayer, according to David, seems to mean to ponder the character of God more than we do as modern Christians. And so I wonder this morning, when you find yourself in need, when you find yourself desperate for relief, when you pray to God in those moments, do you begin pondering his character? Do you begin reminding yourself of what you know to be true about the God that you're praying to? Or have you forgotten that he's the God of your righteousness? Have you forgotten how faithful he has been to you in the past to relieve you in your distress? I wonder if you believe this morning that God is a righteous God who hears the prayers of his people and that he will do what is right in his relationship with you. I wonder if you've forgotten that this morning. I wonder if you've forgotten he will do what is right with you, even if it's not what you ask or desire. That he is that good and he is that righteous on your behalf. He will always do what is right for you. I wonder, have you forgotten that this morning? Have you forgotten God's faithfulness to you in the past? Maybe you need to be like Joshua and the Israelites. And maybe you need to build a stack of stones of remembrance to remind you of how faithful God has been to you in all of the seasons of darkness and distress and despair in your past and how He's brought you through all of those. The testimony of the fact that you're sitting in this very room this morning, listening to this word being proclaimed. Maybe you need to be like Joshua and build stones of remembrance in your life so you can look back over it and reflect on what he's done for you so that your heart will learn to trust him in this present trial and cry out to him in confident prayer. David knew that his only help was in God. Do you? Do you? Well, David not only models confidence in prayer, secondly, he also models certainty in his position. 
in verses 2 and 3. He writes, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Notice the language that David uses in verses 2 and 3. He is speaking with certainty as he moves from praying to God to addressing his enemies and rebuking them for their evil opposition against him. And notice what he does in verse number 2. He asks his enemies the question that we all ask in times of difficulty. How long? How long? It's a question, it's an expression, it's a phrase that shows concern about the duration of one's trials and difficulties. And by David using it, David is perplexed about when all of this opposition and when all of these difficulties facing him will subside. And you'll notice in verse number two that he asks it three times. Do you see it? How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words? How long will you seek after lies? Now, you need to understand what David is asking and saying with these questions to make sense of the psalm. The men, the enemies that David is talking to have been lying about him and they've been seeking to overthrow his throne. But the main issue in verse number two is an issue of idolatry. In Amos chapter 2 and verse 4, the prophet uses the word lies, the same word that David uses here in verse number 2, as another name for the idols that Israel worshipped. And so when David says they seek after lies, he is referring to his enemies seeking help from false gods. And when he says they love vain words, David is describing their empty, worthless worship of false gods who will never be able to save them and never be able to help them. In essence, what David is saying to his enemies is that they've not only rejected him as their earthly king, they have rejected God as their heavenly king. And because they've rejected David, they've rejected God. They love false gods, they pray to false gods, and they worship false gods. And David, with courage, confronts them. He prays with confidence, and then he is certain in his position, and he begins by confronting his enemies. And the words that he says here in verse 2 ring out similar words that the prophet Jeremiah spoke in Jeremiah chapter 2 in verse 11, where the Bible says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And that's the issue. They've abandoned the one true God for false gods that will never profit and never satisfy. And in turn, they have rejected God's king whom he's anointed and set apart and put on his earthly throne. And by rejecting God's king, they have indeed rejected God. 
As I was studying this passage and thinking through its implications, I couldn't help but see the picture that is mirrored between David's day and our day. A day when God is openly, willfully, blatantly rejected. And all those who are associated with God are rejected with him. And I was reading a commentary on this passage, and this is what James Hamilton wrote in his observation and application of what David says in verse number 2. For those who have rejected Yahweh and his moral authority, the commands and prohibitions, promises and prescriptions of the, war, of the Lord are worthy only of scorn. Does that sound familiar? It's worthy only of scorn. They mock the existence of God. Suggest that those who believe what he says are harming others. And they do all they can to make everyone regard their wicked immorality as righteous, good behavior. End quote. It's as if I just read to you the front page of your newspaper this morning. Blaming God, rejecting his authority, blaming those who follow him. And we find ourselves like David. How long, God, will you let this go on? When will you rise up and defeat it all? <laughs> but don't miss it. You got your Bible open? Look at the text. Look at what happens next in verse number two. Selah. Remember what that means? Pause. Think about that. And it's good right here in the middle of this sermon to stop and to meditate and to think about the deeply rooted folly of the wicked and of the world and of their continual propensity to evil and of their certain destruction. But it is also good to pause and to stop and to think and to remember that you and I were just like them until we experienced the grace of God. The grace of God which has taught us to love truth and to pursue righteousness and to live with a sober mind. And the only difference between us and the world that we struggle with so much is that we've tasted the grace of God and they haven't. It's good to pause and stop and to think about that. And listen to me, dear friend. It is also good to pause and to stop and to ask every single unbeliever in this room, how long will you continue to reject and oppose God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? How long will you continue to oppose the one true and living God? How long will you continue to seek lies and serve a God of your own imagination? How long? How long? In verse 3, David moves from courageously confronting the wickedness of his enemies to confidently reminding them that he is the Lord's servant and that the Lord will hear him when he calls to him. Now listen, oh, this is good. This is worth church this morning. I'm telling you, it's good and it'll help you. David is confident in verse number 3 in his position because of what God has already done for him. Look at the language. It's past tense. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. That phrase set apart means to make a distinction. 
And if you go back into the Old Testament, you find that the idea behind this phrase is that God sets special attention and affection on a person or a people to distinguish them from others. This phrase is used in the book of Exodus in chapter 8 and verse 22, chapter 9 and verse 4, chapter 11 and verse 7, and chapter 33 and verse 16. And in those verses, Yahweh makes a distinction between Israel and the Egyptians. And he says Israel would not be plagued by flies, nor would their cattle or firstborn be destroyed. They are given special protection by God from the plagues that he is pouring on Egypt. And by using this word from the Exodus in the Old Testament, David is warning these idolaters, these enemies, those who are opposed to him and God, that God has set him apart, that he belongs to God. And no matter what they say about him, and no matter what they try to do to him, he still belongs to God. Look at the verse, verse 3. He has set apart the godly for himself. It describes someone who is loved by God and who loves God in return. A godly man, a godly woman is faithful to God and committed to God because God has been faithful to them and committed to them. And they love God because God first set his love on them. And David is confident even though he's in distress, even though he feels as if he's in a tight place. David is confident in his position because he knows that he belongs to God and God set him apart a long time ago. And when God put his hand on him, it doesn't matter what anybody tries to do to him. He's eternally and perfectly secure in God. God's written his name on him. And if you belong to Christ, what was true of David is true of you. You've been set apart for God. Notice, look at the text. David shows us that the weapon against slander and accusation is to remember how God regards you. It's to remember what God has said about you. It's to remember what God thinks about you. And in case you've forgotten, if you belong to Christ, what God says about you and what God thinks about you, listen to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. That's what David is saying. Can't you feel it? Can't you feel it in the text? He's hiding in a cave somewhere, surrounded by his enemies, crying out to God in confident prayer, speaking courageous truth to them. How long? How long? And he's certain of his position because God has set him apart and he's written, David is mine. Nobody can touch him. He's confident in his position. Look at the text. Because of what God is doing now, the text moves from past tense to present tense. Do you see it in verse 3? The Lord hears when I call to him. He's confident. He's confident in his relationship with God. He is confident where he stands with God. He's certain of his position. Do you know where I think his certainty came from? His prayer in verse number one. It is connected. And friends, David reminds us that God cannot be deceived. He knows who's faithful to him. 
and he knows who's not. He knows who truly loves him and who's playing a game and living a lie. And this text begs us to ask the question, can you be described as a godly one? One who has experienced the love of God through his son, Jesus Christ, and in return has expressed that love back to him. Can you be described as one who is committed to God and faithful to God in the areas of your life? Do you belong to him? Is he written, you are mine over your life? Like David, are you confident in your position this morning? Can you say that God has set you apart for himself? If you can say that this morning, then trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with whatever it is that you've brought into this place today that is weighing you down. Trust Him in that and for that. You are His. You belong to Him. You couldn't be more secure this morning than you are in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no greater security than that. Well, David not only models confidence in prayer and certainty in his position, number three, he models powerful counsel in verses four and five. The, these are difficult verses, friends. I spent hours trying to understand what David was saying in these verses. And he writes, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Here's what I think is happening in the text. To the best of my discernment and ability in studying, I think that David is still speaking to his enemies. What he began in verses 2 and 3, he continues in verses 4 and 5. And he's giving them counsel. And he's calling them to put an end to their opposition against him and against God. And in verses 4 and 5, he gives them six clear instructions. And I'm just going to walk you through those very simply. I'm going to say very little about it because it's very self-explanatory. Number one, he says, be angry. The NSAB says, be, be trembling. I think that's a better translation than the ESV. It's not be angry, it's tremble. It's stand in awe before the Lord. Here's why I think that's a better translation. David is telling them to repent of their sin. How long are you going to continue to worship false idols? How long are you going to oppose God? Tremble before the God of the universe. Bow down before him. That's what I think he's saying. Number two, don't sin. Paul will quote Psalm 4 in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 to 27. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath and give opportunity for the devil. It's just what David is saying. It's, it's what Proverbs 3, 7 says. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Humble yourself before God. Tremble before him. Stand in awe of him. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Quit sinning. Quit opposing God. Number three. Search your own hearts. Instead of tossing and turning in bed over the actions of others, take inventory of your own sins and confess what your heart needs to confess. Number four, be silent. 
Be sorry for the things that are in your heart. Quit making excuses. Quit complaining about others. Quit complaining about your situation. Be quiet. It's what Proverbs tells us. In a multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Number five, offer right sacrifices. He's telling them, abandon the hypocrisy of your empty worship and approach God with the right worship, with right sacrifices from a pure heart. And then number six, trust the Lord. It's just what he said in Psalm 2 and verse 12. Kiss the Son. Surrender completely to Christ. And I'm submitting to you this morning that when you read verses 4 and 5 together on the heels of verses 2 and 3, and you see all six of these instructions, I think it becomes clear that David is calling his enemies to repentance, to godliness, to a surrender to God, to a position of no longer opposing God, into a position of living for God. And David is teaching them and he's teaching us that only God can bring this kind of change of heart about in a person's life. And notice, look at the text at at the end of verse 4. What do you see again, friends? Selah. Pause. Think about that. Think about those people in your life who you feel are in opposition to you this morning. Think about those people who have said things that are untrue about you. Why are you tossing and turning in your bed at night, worried about what they think and what they say? Only the Lord can change their heart. Be silent. Trust the Lord. My wife will often ask me this question. How's your heart? I couldn't help but think about that question as I was studying verses 4 and 5 and thinking about it. It's a really good question. It's a really good question to pause and ponder and think about and ask yourself on a regular basis because life is busy and life is full and life comes at us from all directions. And if you're not careful, you can miss and overlook the true condition of your heart. And that's what David was trying to get his enemies to, their heart. Because that's where true transformation takes place, friends. Everything, Jesus said, everything that comes out of your mouth, everything, Proverbs says, that comes out of your life, its source is your heart. It's inside of you. What's going on inside of you? How's your heart? Do you have peace with God this morning? Do you have peace with others in your life? Or are you in opposition to him and in opposition to them? Are you more concerned about the sins of those around you and the sins of the world than you are the sins that lurk inside your own heart this morning? How's your heart? Have you completely surrendered to Christ? David not only models confidence in prayer and certainty in his position and powerful counsel. Number four, finally, he models the celebration of peace in verses 6 
through 8. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone. O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Another shift takes place in the psalm in verse 6. David moves from talking to his enemies to addressing his companions, to addressing those who are hiding out in the cave with him. Notice, many of those who were following David were asking, who will show us some good? It literally means that David's companions were wanting to know if their distressed king would still lead them into a victorious future. When they asked the question, who will show us some good, it could be translated this way. Oh, that we might see some good. Can any good come out of this situation? Who in the world is going to get us out of this cave? Who is going to get us away from these enemies? Will continuing to follow David result in our good? And listen, the language of verse 6 indicates that they kept asking this question over and over again. Now, can you imagine being David in that moment? You're with your best buds, and you hear them saying, is he going to get us out of this? Any good going to come out of this? Can he help us? They were in despair and discouragement. And I bet that you can relate to that. I bet you've asked similar questions in your distress. How am I going to get out of this? What good could ever come out of this situation? I've been praying. I've been working hard, God. I've been faithful to you. And look at this. Is this what you call good for my life? Oh, don't tell me you've never said that. Don't tell me you've never thought that. And in response to his followers' doubts, David didn't talk to them. Look at the text. He didn't talk to them. You know what he did? He did what you and I need to learn to do. He talked to God, and he said, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. What a statement. What a statement in the midst of his followers worried about this turning out for good. Do you know what he did? He quoted Aaron's benediction from the book of Numbers. Here's what Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26 say. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Don't miss what David is doing in this text. He prayed that the fullness of God's divine favor would be poured out on his companions in their despair and discouragement. That right there in the middle of that cave, surrounded by their enemies, in a place of distress, in a place of discouragement, in a place of darkness, David prayed that God would pour his favor out on the people. And it's a reminder, this also is worth coming to church for this morning. It's a reminder 
that sometimes what you and I need to take our next breath, to take our next step, to face the next week, to live the next day. Are you listening to me this morning, church? It's found right in the middle of worship. It's right there in the middle of worship when you encounter the living God and he gives you something for your next breath, your next step, your next week, your next decision. And the reason why you might be struggling is because you've neglected the worship of the God you say you love. A prayer of blessing for God's favor to come upon his people. And I say to you this morning, which one of us doesn't need that? Which one of us doesn't need to come and encounter the favor of God in our worship? Notice in verses 7 and 8, David continues to address God. He's testifying to the work that God has done in his heart in response to his prayer in verse number 1. And don't miss this. Prayer didn't change David's circumstances. It changed David. His circumstances hasn't changed from verse 1 to verses 7 and 8. Prayer didn't change his circumstances. Prayer changed him And notice what his testimony is in these verses. His anxiety was transformed into assurance. He experienced more joy than when their grain and wine abound. You know what he's referring to? He's referring to the harvest and he's referring to weddings. When there was great celebration as the harvest was gathered in or when somebody got married. And he says, God from verse 1 to verse 7 has put more joy in my heart than a fruitful high." fruitful harvest and the best tasting wine that the land can produce I have more joy than when I've been at a wedding that's what he's saying God has done this in my life I'm still in trouble I got a band of discouraged disheartened followers but inside I've got a divine internal Abundant joy that isn't dependent upon any circumstance. Now notice verse 8. This is where we get the title, An Evening Psalm. David testified that in the midst of his distress, his security came from God alone. Do you see that in the text? His security came from God alone. Not from his ring doorbell. Not from ADT. Not from anything but God. And notice, he's at peace and he can lie down and go to sleep. Doesn't that sound good? Now listen, that's not permission to be peaceful and fall asleep right now. you got to stay awake. The sermon's not over. It sounds really good, doesn't it, to be peaceful and to lie down and to go to sleep? Do you know what this word peace means? It's more than the absence of conflict. It carries with it the adequacy of life. God, I'm sitting in this cave. There's darkness and distress and discouragement all around me. But I got confidence in you. I'm talking to you. You've been faithful to me. You've relieved me from the distress in the past. You're the God of my righteousness. You're always going to do what's right in my life. I can trust in you, God. 
I can do it. I know I can. God, you've poured your favor out on me and my followers while we're sitting here in this cave. God, you've just filled me full of joy. I can't help but sing. I'm sitting here singing, and I'm hoping that some others will start singing with me. And God, I'm at peace. I mean, you've given me everything I need in my life. I know I'm going to make it through this. I'm at peace. So here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to go over here on this bed of rocks, and I'm going to lay down, and I'm going to close my eyes, and I'm going to sleep. And I'm just not going to sleep, God. I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. I mean, it's going to take something loud to wake me up. Do you, do you see the text? It's so good. A simple word there, both. Both lie down and sleep. How many of you know this morning it's one thing to lie down and it's another thing to go to sleep? Oh, some of you young folks have no idea what I'm talking about. You just wait. You just wait. You got something to look forward to. And David says, I'm lying down and I'm sleeping because I'm at perfect peace. And this is the reality for everyone who trusts God the way I'm trusting God. Don't you remember what Jesus said to his followers in John 14, 27? Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, friend, do you understand you have the God of peace? So why is your heart troubled today? Why are you afraid? Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would abound in hope. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. <laughs> you just don't have a God of peace. you got a God of hope. you got a God of joy who fills you when you trust Him. And it's only God that could do this in David's life. Don't you want that kind of peace? Don't you want that kind of joy? Don't you want that kind of rest? Don't you want to have more joy in your heart than the unbelieving world? Oh, they think they're so happy. They're miserable. They're miserable in their sin. Because sin always promises the moon and it never satisfies. Only Jesus Christ will give you peace. Only Jesus Christ will give you joy. Only Jesus Christ will give you rest. And like Psalm 3, this psalm points to the future and the experience of God's dear son, Jesus Christ. He spoke to his disciples of abundant life, of fullness of joy and of lasting peace. And when he suffered at the hands of God's enemies, he modeled confident trust in his father, knowing that his father heard every single one of his prayers. And after his work on the cross was completed, he committed his body and his spirit into the safe hands of his father. And Jesus slept in death, knowing that his father would resurrect him from the dead. And like David, the greater David, Jesus Christ, modeled confident trust in God in the midst of his trials. Here's what I know, friends. There are nights in our lives when the battle of the day rage war within our hearts and our minds as we lay our heads down on our pillow. And it is in those moments 
that Psalm 4 becomes a helpful song to dispel the darkness of despair. For it is in those vulnerable moments of life when our head is on our pillow, when the pressures mount and threaten to rob us of joy and peace and rest, that those who trust in God will find comfort, courage, and confidence as he shines the light of his face upon them in the darkness. Like David and Job before him, God will give every single one of his people a song for the night to sing to him for his glory. Let's pray.